welcome again to another evening. As always, I'm Danny. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok as Blotted Ink Books. And for this episode, I'm joined by the author of my current read, uh, which I'm absolutely loving. Um, I'm enjoying it so much. It is a fantastic slice of historical fiction. Um, obviously one of my favourite genres. And as we know on this pod, I'm a big fan of a, a villainous woman or a uh, possibly villainous woman. I love to find out more about these women that have been created, have been written about through the ages. Um, you know, we had Clytemnestra, we were talking about how she's been portrayed uh, through the years. And for this read that I'm currently reading, we are taking one of the most famous uh, quote unquote villainous women um, and we're finding out about her origin story. The book is Lady Macbethad, and the author is Isabel Schuler. Um, this is a book, if you like historical fiction, if you're even remotely a fan of the play uh, Macbeth, this is one for you. You need to be reading this. It's incredibly interesting. And I have a lot of questions for Isabel. I hope she's ready for this um, because I've got a list as long as my arm of things that I need to ask her. So let's welcome her to the pod. So a big hello to Isabel. Hi. Hello. How are you, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm doing excellently. And I've seen you've had quite a busy few days, right? I was seeing on your Instagram, you've been here, there and everywhere, right? It certainly feels that way. Um, last night I was in Norwich with author Constanza Cassati. Yeah. Um, we were talking about our books, Clytemnestra and Lady Macbethed. Um, and it was kind of the crossover that I didn't realize, well, I knew I needed, but then was confirmed in yeah. that because um, our books have so much in common. And yeah. um, we got to <laughs> we got to the point where it was time to start taking questions. And we kind of just breezed past that and we just kept talking for another five minutes. I love that though. <laughs> we just could have, honestly, we could have kept talking forever. I did think, so I recorded with Costanza uh, a few weeks ago. Um, she was lovely. But yeah, there's definitely some crossovers with the, you know, your characters and your books and how they've been perceived in previous incarnations, yeah. how they're perceived now, how you guys have taken a, a spin on them and looked at them from different angles. I mean, yeah. I'm reading your book at the moment, Lady Macbeth ad, I'm loving it. <laughs> Thank you. It's so good. And I'm not just paying you lip service. I'm really, really loving it. And it's something I didn't realize that she was a real person, right? Yeah, she is. Um, and I think that that too was the thing that really hooked me because I have a background in acting um, and I played Lady Macbeth before in Shakespeare's play. Um, and I had always really struggled with the gendered language around ambition in the play and the characterization of her. But when you're an actress, you just have to bring, you have to find the truth somewhere um, and you find it and you do the job and you move on. And I just, I never really was able to move on from her. Um, and it was in, um, it was actually in kind of Googling long after I played her, I just sort of Googled the real Lady Macbeth because I wanted to see if she was based on a real character. Um, and I kind of vaguely knew that Macbeth was 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 real, but I wasn't sure about her. And I found her Wikipedia page, as every self-respecting author yep. does. <laughs> um, and it's like less than 300 words, and it reads like something out of Game of Thrones. It is just phenomenal, the life that she led before, like all before yeah. she met Macbeth and before she became Lady Macbeth. Um, she lived this incredible incredible life and I was I was so captivated by that that I was like well this has to be the story has to be told yeah definitely I mean as soon as I like tweet and I did the same thing I started reading there and I was like I'm just gonna have a little a little Wikipedia um as you say that's the first place you go if you really want true insightful information absolutely but I was absolutely <laughs> amazed so my part of my family originally from Scotland. We're actually from Fife, um, and no we way. are Duncans. Yeah, we are Duncan clan. Oh, yes. So obviously, like the story of Duncan, the story of Macbeth is one that in my family we've always talked about because obviously we are Duncans. So we'd always be like, eh, you know, Duncan. So I kind of like I knew he was real, and I kind of had an inkling that Macbeth was real, but I had no idea that you know Lady Macbeth is this figure who's become kind of the archetypal villainous woman, right? Yeah. Well, a woman leads a man badly. Uh, you know, there's that kind of story of, you know, 
she's not she's not a virtuous woman she leads her husband to do terrible things and it's really interesting to read in your book that she's a survivor right this is a girl yeah. who's survived so much yeah yeah well and I, I think without giving without giving too much away um she part of her life before Macbeth the two big things that stood out to me is first of all she was married before Macbeth Macbeth is actually her seven knew that um which is was shocking to me I think especially because of the way that Shakespeare has portrayed them as actually really a strong couple especially at the beginning that he has so much respect for her and it's funny because people call her manipulative but actually he's quite happy to listen to her this is not her um sort of tricking him into doing something that he doesn't want to do this is this is her understanding her husband and knowing her husband and knowing what to say to encourage encourage him or yeah. you know and it's only um it's only our our take on that that then makes her manipulative yeah. but yeah so she she was married before Macbeth and then the other like shocking thing to me um as anybody who knows the play is she <laughs> had <laughs> The other shocking thing um, for to me, for any, especially for anyone who knows the play, is that she had a son yeah. um, with her first husband, who then in history, again, this doesn't really feature in the events of the book, but in history, he goes on to be king for a year, um, oh. which is especially because in the play, she has this very famous line where she is trying to convince Macbeth. Um, they're just about to, uh, Macbeth is starting to have these doubts and she goes through this whole range of, I guess you could probably at this point call it manipulation. <laughs> She's like, are we've you all been man? there? Yeah, like, yeah, we've all been there. Um, she was like, come on, I thought you were a man. Like, I was so turned on by you when you did this and you were just like ruthless and now you're not. And she just kind of goes through this whole thing. And it ends on this note where she says, and I'll just, I'll quote it here. It's, I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. Yeah. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn, as you have done to this. Which, if there's just like so much in there. First of all, it's the only mention of children that she has in the entire book. Yeah. And all theses, like theses, theses, have been written on- That one, yeah. Like, where are Macbeth's children? Especially because- legacy and dynasty and and who whose children will rule is such a huge part of the play to then find out that Gruick actually had a kid and from again another um <laughs> another sort of uh I, what, what I think just was um ripe with uh imagination or, or creative space is from all we can from all accounts Gruick, the real Lady Macbeth, and Macbeth didn't have any children. So that is true. They didn't have any children together. But Macbeth accepted her son as right. his stepson because, because he succeeds the throne. He, when, when Macbeth dies, he he becomes king. Yeah. And, and that, to me, is like, what kind of dynamic must have been there between the two of them that, like, just there, there's, there was so much to play with. I couldn't... Yeah. I couldn't I, I think it's interesting like you said as well about you know how she was seen as manipulative and it's a really interesting so you're looking at the Elizabethan take of marriage and how a man rules how yeah. women didn't really have authority or you know so then you're bringing in this one and, and back then it was quite a different scenario with with marriage in a lot of you know sort of high state marriages mm -hmm. women were quite powerful in their own right they were game players they were you know they knew their own value yeah. they played their games differently but to see it from then Shakespeare's perspective of well she's in you know she's encouraging him she's talking to him about matters of state and politics and the throne she must be manipulative and she must be wily and too ambitious it's really interesting yeah well and I think what is I sort of found this out more recently so this didn't influence the book but it also doesn't surprise me at all which is that um both Shakespeare and Hollinshed Hollinshed's Chronicles is the yeah. is what Shakespeare based the story of Macbeth right. and then before that before Hollinshed's Chronicles it was Scutorium Historia I think by another chronicler which the all of those chroniclers were living at the time of the King James yeah yeah 
Um, and King James, as you probably know, is a descendant from Duncan and is a descendant from Duncan's son, Malcolm, who does eventually go on to rule. And Macbeth is from the other line. There's sort of two yeah. lines that you can trace through um, early Scottish history in terms of when they formed Alba, like when they became, um, when they went from being picked to you and all of these other tribes yeah. to Alba, there were sort of two distinct lines and Duncan is one and Macbeth is the other. Right. And so even the portrayal of Macbeth as this usurper and um, therefore Lady Macbeth and her part, the part that she plays in that is all political because mm -hmm. they need to they need to show how Macbeth and that whole line are not actually the rightful heirs and it was Duncan and Malcolm and Malcolm's descendants i.e King James that really were truly Should have been ruling yeah. yeah and so the fact that that play is so political and yet it has painted these real people yeah. I think that's the thing that these aren't like if it was if it was just a play or just a story it might be more forgivable but these were people who live and we now associate them with uh, with particular traits with particular um and not very good you know they're villains and villainesses um and actually Macbeth is like one of the longest ruling monarchs of that time he ruled yeah. very successfully um very well I can only imagine that Grove probably had a part to play in that yeah. um and it's just fascinating to me how history has been so warped in this particular instance because of, yeah, because of the political angle that Shakespeare and Hollywood had to take. It's, yeah, when you put it like that and you see it for what it really is, it is a political campaign. Those writings are, you know, yeah. they are to besmirch the name of Macbeth as a usurper. And I found it really interesting. I wasn't aware of how kind of kingship worked there in, in ways of your heir. So even if you had a son yeah. or a grandson, that wouldn't necessarily be the person who took the throne. No. And that was, they they had, um it's kind of the rules of tanistry and, and all yeah. of that. Um, and I mean, I think it's not necessarily how people took, how, you know, how they took the throne. I imagine there was, there was, there would have been a lot of pressure to mm -hmm. support you know the friends uncles cousins etc um family cousins or um family and, and close relations but all that to say like it, there was something to be there was room in that system in that way of doing things for if there is somebody who is better fit and and sort of all the mormers mormares can recognize that then then there then there is room and there is scope for that and probably still within the ruling elite and within these families but this idea that it just passes sort of arbitrarily to yeah. the son was not something that was part of that early Scottish tradition. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think, you know, there's something to be said, as you say, you know, you, you have a king who has a son and those sons could be crowned, you know, as boys. You have no idea what they're going to turn into as rulers or... And I think the idea of being able to, you know, nothing was a, a given, right? You weren't automatically going to be king because you were a prince. Yeah. And I think this is the thing, though, that, um, again, makes, I, I think the story just lent itself to <laughs> creative, um, to creative scope, because um, another thing that people don't realize is that Duncan and Macbeth were contemporaries. They were cousins. Um right. It wasn't this old, you know, he, Duncan wasn't this old man. He was, um, he was, yeah, probably around the same age as Macbeth. And also, by all accounts, far less competent in ruling, in um, fighting, in sort of everything. Right. Um, and because he, Malcolm, his grandfather, King Malcolm, had only daughters, you can kind of, it's very easy to imagine the pressure that would then be put on Duncan to, and, and kind of, a, you can almost feel for him because I imagine it would be a pressure that nobody could ever live up to. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in my book, I sort of, um, which of course we don't know this for sure, but King Malcolm kind of does everything he can to protect Duncan yeah. by sort of killing off enemies one by one. Um, but of course, in so doing, Duncan never gets to fight his own battles. So yeah. he kind of, like that character is just ready-made like we all know that person we all know that person who's never had to fight yeah. with front, who's never had to face adversity um the entitlement that comes with that but also I think 
Yeah, I know you. You don't like it either. Um, my dog is kicking off. Yeah, <laughs> but I think also it was really important to me in Duncan to make him sympathetic. Like all of these yeah. characters are just people, and and in time when we meet them, they're just boys, right? When we meet them, they're just young lads. They're just boys with and yeah. and the exact like circumstances aside like these are boys and these are girls that are like us you know and they're pawns in other people's games when we meet them first they're really just you know they're being moved around on a board they don't necessarily even want to be on yeah absolutely absolutely and for you obviously you know lady macbeth lady macbeth is such a famous figure how was it how did it feel for you to kind of take this story on oh my gosh well it's so funny because I, I'm so glad you asked that question because it started out I as like I'm an American I was super confident yep. <laughs> I was like yeah I got this I love Shakespeare I grew up with Shakespeare I basically speak it like a second language I live and breathe these stories and these characters um and then I sort of remembered that I live in England where the history- like oh I'm an American I'm an American <laughs> trying to tell this story. And yeah. it wasn't so much as, um, it, yeah, it wasn't so much, I, I sort of, as through as I started going through the drafts and actually really once the story got picked up, <laughs> once the story yeah. got picked up by Bloomsbury, um, once it became real, I guess in that sense, yeah. like once it moved from a sort of passion project that I had to book contracts, editors all of these things I did start to think um about the fact that people will have specific ideas of who she is and what she's supposed to be and like you talk about um earlier about like manipulation and and manipulativeness and I don't read her that way like like I said earlier um or at least no more so than any of us trying to get like I read her as somebody who just knows her husband really well um and actually I love kind of bringing in other sources um Kurosawa the Japanese director does um he has a production called Throne of Blood which Mm -hmm. is uh Macbeth set in feudal Japan oh wow Um, it's, it's incredible it's black and white it's actually seen as one of the best retellings he doesn't use any of the original dialogue but captures the play beat for beat, scene for scene, character for character, motivation for motivation, perfectly. And there is this, um, in a scene that mirrors the scene where um, Lady Macbeth is trying to convince Macbeth, um, the sort of, the Lady Macbeth character uh, is talking to the Macbeth character in Kurosawa's film. And he says, I, you know, I would never do this. Like, you, you know, this is, this is all you. And she basically says something to to the, along the lines of, I'm just telling you what is already in your heart. Like, I'm not saying that you don't know. I'm not giving you. And I think that is, that is not manipulation. That is intimacy and knowledge. And so, so anyway, kind of going back to this idea of, what people expect Lady Macbeth to be. Um, I just, I, it did sort of hit me when it became official that there were going to be people who didn't agree with my rendition. Um, and we're gonna look at the text of Shakespeare's play and and my, my, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. my imagination and, and, and possibly not like it. I think it's, it's been received fairly well thus far, but I, I do recognize that and I honor that because because of everything that she stands for in terms of female ambition and in terms of that ruthlessness and that unapologetic nature. And I think the only thing that I would say is that this is very much an origin story. Yeah, I think we don't actually get the seeds of the Lady Macbeth that we see in the play until kind of the very end yeah. of the book. And that was quite deliberate as well because like at five years old, she, you know, we meet her and she is quite stylized, but she's five years old. Like she's not going to go around slitting people's throats. (laughs) Um, You see what creates her. This is the, you see what is going to eventually make the Lady Macbeth we see in our heads. You see what it is that's going to make that. Exactly, exactly. And I think as well, the book 
um, this isn't a spoiler, the book ends with her becoming Lady Macbeth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with her we know she's going to. Yeah, the title like, is. You know, we, know that, we know that's happened. We, you know, we know that that is going to eventually end up, um, end up happening. But in doing so, I almost wanted to give the reader a chance if they do engage with the play if you don't engage with Shakespeare it's absolutely fine to enjoy this book well sweeping historical fiction you know lots of um sword fights and violence and you know love and all of the desire and all these like exciting things but if you do watch the play or if you know the play kind of sort of I wanted to give them the chance to almost fill in that gap and see this is where she ends in the book what would it take to kind of push her even further towards yeah. the the towards the on the trajectory that she's already on? Yeah, and I guess the question is, how do you follow up Lady Macbethard? Because I guess this, as you said, it's it was a passion project, right? So you got your first book; it's based on your love. When you then come to a second book, it's a completely different ball game, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I think any author will tell you the second book is so hard. Um, and it's so hard for everybody in a different way, I think. Um, do, you, do you do the same again? Do you kind of take another historical thing? Do you go completely? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah I, I do, I do. For me, I um, I think I'm in the retelling genre. That's, that's, my, that's my jam. That's what I love. Um, and it's not just sort of straight retellings, um, similar to this it's kind of taking a character out of its context putting it in a different context and kind of exploring themes around that um and so i i have a real a real heart and a real passion for um looking and exploring and digging deeper into stories that we already know but from a different angle that then sheds hopefully a different light on the story and adds a dimension to it um so yeah, so I will, I, I will probably, I will probably always be doing a retelling of some kind, but I must, I must say as well, this is just like a little thing of mine is for me, for Lady Macbeth, certainly. And even for my second book, retelling doesn't quite capture it. Um, no, that's true. Cause it's, you're not, you're not retelling. It's really a whole new chapter of their story. Right. Well, and kind of what I, my, my little tagline that I use for Lady Macbethard is more than a retelling, it is a reclamation, a refusal to relegate a powerful, a powerful queen to a footnote in someone else's history, which of course has all the drama that you would want out of it. You got me. Uh (laughs) There's something in that, that this is more, we're not just telling these stories again, we are saying these stories aren't finished. There is there is more to be discovered and there's more to uncover. So rather than just, um, yeah, rather than just tell the story, I guess maybe in a modern ver- vernacular in a way people can read, it's let's look at this character and explore her or, you know, explore the origin story. Or for my next book, let's, let's add a character into the story and see how that changes the dynamic and see yeah. how that changes. Oh, interesting. How we, yeah, how we- um, So I think with a lot of these women, Again, you know, we were talking about Christminestra, we were talking about Lady Macbeth. It always seems to boil down to like their marriage. That's yeah. that's what we usually see. And they've been married or they're about to marry. And it's how does that man change them? How does becoming a wife change them? And so many of these women, you know, have pasts. They have things that happened to them before and they've lived through lives. And also what happens after? You know, mm-hmm. so many women were widowed and were, you know, left alone. And so I, I love what you're saying about, you know, a reclamation. I think that's what this is, is taking these women's voices back, right? So you actually get to hear who they were outside of their husband. You know, she isn't just Lady Macbeth. Yeah. She has a well, whole life. Yeah, exactly. And I think for, for me, in terms of, um, I've got, yeah, like I said, I've got a, a second book, book that I um, have turned the first draft in, uh, which is not a Shakespeare retelling. It's it's a different retelling. Um, but that being said, if if anyone ever lets me, I I don't think we're done with Lady Macbeth. I I think she has more to say. I think there is something to be. I think Shakespeare has a lot to answer for. I think yep. the fact he wrote a play that is so diametrically opposed to what happened in real history. Like I want to rectify. I feel like that needs to be rectified, um, especially because of how that play now lives in our imagination. Um, and I think also even going beyond that, you talk about life beyond you know marriage and life beyond husbands and I, this is something that Clytemnestra does that Constanza does so beautifully with Clytemnestra 
is the is the life after the life after the husband the life after the children um and in Shakespeare's play she sort of just Lady Macbeth just fades into the background she yeah. goes from being this very strong together driven with it woman to the next scene we see her losing her mind and then she's gone and and she's yeah. sort of um in the play she kills herself um and it doesn't even happen on stage. It's like a foot, like someone comes yeah. in and says, your wife is she doesn't dead. even get that moment. She doesn't even get that moment to do that. It just yeah. fades into obscurity, having sort of completed her her role in this play yeah. of, you know, inciting her husband. And for me, from everything that I sort of can see, even though there's not much, what I can see in her real life, she must have been a survivor to have to go through what she went through. Um, and the character that I've created, and even the like, even the character that Shakespeare created, that that story, I just, I'm not convinced. I don't yeah, it doesn't make sense. Story end. It doesn't make sense, <laughs> and I feel like she needs a better ending. Um, so hopefully, I'll hopefully I'll get a chance. I would love, I would love, love, love to read that. I think there's, as you say, there's so much more that can be told about her. And now moving into your novel evening, you speak really passionately about, you know, stage. I can tell you obviously love stage plays, you love history. So I'm really hoping that we're going to have some of that brought into this novel evening. <laughs> That's so much pressure. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no pressure, but it sounds like you know your shit. So yes, I, I, I do. I've, um, I've actually... Yeah, I, I've thought about this, obviously, because I, I knew that I was going to be thinking about this. Um, and well, also, basically, um, we start in terms yes. of setting the stage. Um, I would actually love to have it at my house <laughs> because I love hosting. Um, I love cooking for people. It would have to be in the summer because I have a tiny flat um, and I can only really host people outside. Um so yeah so I think <laughs> the it's not many because um I'm a little bit of an introvert so actually the idea of having as much as I would love to cram like all of my favorite characters and authors in the same room I would also then maybe not want to be in that room because it would yep, just be that's so very fair that's very fair yeah um, it's to have a few people that you're really going to engage with and feel comfortable then overwhelm exactly yeah. so in terms of history kind of going back back um yeah I would want Penelope uh there from oh. the Odyssey because oh. I feel like she's super clever um she probably has the best stories to tell um I think of all of the sort of Greek uh female characters she's the one that I wouldn't or that I would trust to like not poison my food or try and kill me um so that's I, very fair yeah they are all they're all a bit sus aren't they yeah they are a bit <laughs> Um, and so I'd love to I'd love to have her and I think also just as a character I love I love her heart for Odysseus I think it is very easy when we're trying to go into these retellings um that you know we can <laughs> especially in Greek retellings there were so many horrific men and I do not like you know it's important to yep. draw attention to that it's important that we all hate Agamemnon like these are these are things that we need um but at the same time I think when you do have a story and you know Odysseus is super sus but when you have a story like theirs of of that fidelity of that that love certainly from from her and um I just I I have so much respect for her as a person I have respect for her as a leader as a queen and yeah I do think that she would just tell really good stories and it's interesting as well, because I think in some ways, in some retellings, you know, her loyalty to him is sometimes seen as a bit of a weakness, right? Yeah. Like, you know, she's kind of sat back, her husband's gone off, you know, he's sleeping with witches and he's traveling the globe and he's fighting and all this and she's kind of left behind. But actually, you know, there's retellings that are coming out now where, she, you know, there's, she had to be strong, a woman alone. Yeah. Not a safe thing. Not only that, not, yeah, not only that, but like, I think the thing, the maybe possibly the reason why it's seen as weakness is also he doesn't deserve her fidelity like he doesn't deserve her faithfulness and she gives it to him anyway but there's something like oh man I mean it's hard like it's really hard your husband is gone for years and years like all of these other women took lovers like Helen had you know yeah husband's Clytemnestra did and the fact that 
she has the strength of character i like i think faithfulness is is such it's a next story. level fidelity isn't it when you know what was it seven years the same between when them seeing each other perhaps even longer yeah. you know and you don't know that person that's a long time for someone to change and yet she held on to that you know the odysseus she knew yeah. and i i think that that just speaks of a a love that goes beyond well honestly beyond what we see in a lot of the greek stories in terms of that superficial love the they the weren't sp- great with the old fidelity were they the greeks yeah, no not really no, it wasn't that jam <laughs> yeah, I think that self that complete lack of selfishness this and I think it's important for us to have a conversation about like you know when women are told we can't have things or we can't you know we can't have desires or we can't have multiple sex partners or whatever it is that we're told we can't have because we're a woman um like regard you know there are certain things that just nobody should have women or or, yep, or yep. <laughs> like across the genders but I think um yeah, I just think for her, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a level of selflessness that we, yeah, that we don't see in Greek stories. And even, I mean, even today, there's, you don't see a lot of it. Yeah, it's a real strength of character. And it's standing by her convictions in a way that, yeah, I don't think we really see. And I think she could just use a really nice evening. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> she could also be using, she's, bringing, she's bringing the wine. hundred yeah, percent. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so so Penelope's your little outdoor gathering. Yeah. So Penelope's there. Um, I would also invite Madel- uh, Madeline Miller because I think she's one of the most inc- like I just adore her writing, and I love the way that she does retellings. I love there are so many incredible retelling authors out there. Um, I mean Jennifer Saint is amazing. Claire North is amazing. Elodie Harper, um, Constanza, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There's so many, but there's something about Madeline's writing that is just writing, and there's something about her characterization of just the way that she breathes life into these characters, and and it's just it is it is utterly captivating, and I am such a fan girl, and I just think it'd be really cute to get Penelope and Madeline Miller in a room and just watch them like fangirl over each other. I think that would be really sweet. Oh my goodness I love that I love when you think about it yeah having that historical figure and then having the author there and just watching that oh oh love it and I love the idea of bringing people together I think for myself as much as I'd love to say like oh I'd bring Lady Macbeth I do not want her at any dinner party of mine <laughs> no I think that would be um that would be risky as well it depends what she makes of your your t- you know telling yeah, I don't, I don't yeah exactly exactly um but being the absolute Shakespeare nut that I am, right. I have a Shakespeare character. Um, and so I was also, you know, I, I, I like the idea of trying to plan like who will get on with who and yeah, like- I like that. That, you know, it, the, the evening goes well. Um, these are the things I think about. Um, and so I would invite uh, Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing because I think she and Penelope would like so get on. I think there would just be all the bands. There would be like- all this has, I think it'd be really fun. Yeah, I think that's a nice, that's a nice pairing actually, I think would go really well together. Yeah. I think this was a very mellow evening. This feels like just a you know, nice wine, some yes. you know, nice food, lots of conversation. Conversation, lots of stories, lots of laughter. And I think as well, Beatrice, again, I think like Penelope has a depth of character. Like she's seen some stuff, like she's she's experienced heartbreak. She's experienced difficulty and her resilience is, yeah, just someone that I want to be around. You know, that ability to be lighthearted and crack jokes at absolutely everything, but also from a place of like real depth of experience. I think she just would be great over dinner. Oh, I love that. So is that your group? Is yeah that- that's and my best friend charlotte to which oh. the book is dedicated because then the two of us would be able to like gossip about that night forever amazing yeah you've always got to have your best friend there and i like that you know there's something to be said for a very small intimate group you know there's lots of room for conversation i don't think anyone's gonna overshadow anyone else i think you've got good listeners but also people with good stories so the question is is there anybody you don't want to arrive um I think 
uh, probably Odysseus, <laughs> probably like any Greek male. And it, um, it's, it's the swagger of the Greek male. They would come in and it just immediately be about their stories and their fame and their, you know. For, for me, I have absolutely nothing against men. I, I love yep. men myself. Um, well, man. Um, but I, I, I really... I really love the idea of protecting that sacred space of womanhood and um, and female conversation. And I think, um, oh, there was a brilliant interview that is doing the rounds on Instagram <laughs> with um, Amy from uh, Sex Education. All right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what's her name? Amy, it's- um, Is she- Amy Lou something? Amy Lou Wood. Amy Lou Wood. That's it, um, yeah. Yeah, she does. I can't. I can't even remember. The clip is. Yeah, Amy Lee Wood. Thank you. The um the clip is going around Instagram, and a couple of my girlfriends have shared it with me. And she talks so beautifully and so eloquently, but also so simply about female friendship, and about how empowered you feel when you are with your female friends or or you know non-binary anyone who identifies as 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 yeah. women yeah, yeah. having that experience. Um, and and sharing that and how you feel like you can do anything when you're with them you know you feel you get a bunch of girls together especially get them you know around a table drinking wine and they are just the most empowering like we can do anything you can do anything and there isn't enough um there isn't enough focus put on the power of, of friendship almost not above romantic love because it's not about pitting these things against each other but our focus has been so much, so much on romantic relationships that actually, I think sometimes the power of friendship, especially female friendship, for me has been that I feel most myself, I feel most confident, I feel most assured when I when I need a pick me up, I call my friend Martha. When I need, you know, wisdom, I call my agent Lou or my friend Charlotte. Like I, these women that we go to for love and support and encouragement and strength kind of going back to my evening yeah. like I would really I'd really want to protect that space and that's not to say that women can't be catty in the same way men can be catty like but it's it's just a comment on I think protecting and prioritizing the the female friend in your life is just is something that is has always been really important to me and I as I get older I'm sort of understanding just how much more important that will continue to be. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, you know, it's a conversation that's being had more, I think. And there is something really, and you know, I'm a mother, I have two small children. And in having my children and meeting other women and also meeting, you know, women who are younger than me and older than me, and you start realizing you can pull from all of these life experiences yeah. and build your own confidence in yourself and what you bring to those friendships, which I think is beautiful. Absolutely. And I think that's the that's the amazing thing about um, about female friendship is across ages, like there is a shared experience there. I mean, I have a really good friend of mine who's in her 60s and I have actually always had really good friends in their 60s. In fact, I actually wrote a whole, a whole short film about intergenerational friendship. I'm a unicorn that is doing the festival circuit at the minute about this young woman who's really lonely and finds her tribe in this group of women in their 50s and 60s um and I and yeah I I just think it's it's I'm so glad that we're talking about this and I hope I, I want this for men as well I think oh completely I think that's the one thing that from conversations I have a lot of male friends younger older same age and I think as well, male friendship is not something that's encouraged in in like intimate terms. Like I think for men, a lot of the focus has been on, you know, having your lads to go out with, having your lads to go to the public. And actually sometimes men also need those male friendships where you can just sit and talk or just be together in a space, you know, and just exist together. And I think as women, again, I think we're incredibly fortunate that actually I think intimacy on that level is quite encouraged within friendships from a really young age. We're encouraged to get close to our female friends. We're encouraged to be open and talk about feelings and motherhood and loss and love. And that's not the same for male friendships. And I think that's something that needs to be really embraced and encouraged more. Oh, I agree. And I think as well, I've heard in other, I can't remember which one, so I'm not going to embarrass myself by saying, but in other cultures, 
it's and not not in a western context um male friends are sometimes hold hands like there's a much there's much more physical intimacy between male friends that isn't sexual that is just that i mean we all need physical touch yes like, yeah um and i think for men for it, that to really only be acceptable in a sexual context is just like hugely problematic for many many reasons yes um and i think as well this even this over-sexualization of male friendship. I think there's this story in, um, well, basically, I mean, this might be getting slightly off topic, but um, there is, in the Old Testament, there is this, these two men, there's David and Jonathan, mm -hmm. and they talk about their love for each other as being deeper than that of a woman. Um, and I think some people have read into that a sort of more homoerotic yeah. thing. They will, you know, they kind of say that David's gay. I'm not actually going to make a statement on that. Whether or not, yeah. But what I will say um, is that I feel like the importance of, like you said, deep, intimate relationships between men that don't have to have that sexual overtone or don't have to be that doesn't have to be ready and also between men and women it's possible for men and women to have really deeply intimate connections that are not attraction based or yeah. and that's the other thing i think there's this idea of you can't really be friends with a man if you're a woman because there's always going to be something if you know if you're that close i have male friends you know my very one of my very best friends is man he's godfather to my children I'm not attracted to him but anyway I'm deeply sorry Taz um <laughs> we have a level of friendship now where we've kind of seen each other's ugly parts and we just love each other like there's in no realm would that ever be anything more and you know, we don't talk every day we don't see each other all the time but we're always there and yeah. I think it's understanding friendship comes in so many different guises now absolutely absolutely and I think the more the more that we come away from um, and this is like a very big sort of general yep. society. <laughs> but the more we come from this like hypersexualization that our like our society is just obsessed with sex. And you see this yeah. both both from men and women, this yep. this just fixation on on sex and on sexuality. And and there are important conversations to be had there. Yep. And like that in any and also way. absolutely you know sexuality is wonderful and if you have that connection with people great absolutely. you can I'm also not... just have very you know very gentle safe relationships the thing i think that gets lost a bit when when the um when there is an overemphasis on on sexualization of men of women of relationships um you get this i mean i love rom-coms i love love stories i love romance that's all great i'm not dissing that in any way but there's always the friends eventually fall in love or they realize they were loved the whole time or they realize they were you know I just find that really problematic and I feel like these conversations that we're starting to have about wait a minute actually friendship can be more important like yeah. especially um I was talking to a friend of mine recently and we said sort of sort of sarcastically but like men come and go but friends are forever like and and I and I you know without looking too much into that there is just this idea of those people in your life will sometimes outlast your romantic relationships and and we need to I, I think it would just be really healthy for everyone if we just move realize on. yeah um sort of again just an overemphasis just shift the focus back on friendship across genders across backgrounds across you know everyone just needs to be friends which is probably yeah. like the most naive yeah, I've been married a, a long time I've been with my husband 15 years so I've been with my husband since I was 17 years old wow. and when we first got together I put everything into that because you know having a boyfriend was the most important thing and I let a lot of friendships kind of slide by because I put everything in and now in my 30s I realize actually my husband can't be everything one person cannot fulfill everything you need like you said about your friends you know I have a best friend that I go to he's basically like she's my therapist you're my best friend basically if I need if I need a bit of a talking to about my life she's the one I go to you know if I want some like madcap just fun I'll go to my uni friends but if I want to feel safe that's where my husband is you know if I want to talk about books and literature I have my book friends it's yeah. realizing that, you know, not one person that like you see in the films, they meet the one and their lives are instantly changed. The reality is one person isn't going to fill your cup up. Ooh, and that expectation can be so damaging to a relationship. And I can like that's something that 
you know I'll be honest that even I I really struggle with like I can I I consider myself very independent I consider myself very ambitious um and kind of and and other people would see me that but you put me in a relationship context and it's very hard for me to see you know anything outside of that like it's it's very difficult for me to then remember that like I find so much not more fulfillment but like just as much fulfillment in in female friendships in getting coffee with my friends and um and I and I think that that expectation on that one person can it can destroy a relationship completely and I love I love that we're having this conversation as well I love this is stemmed from the idea of you and these you know four women around your table talking and realizing you know you can have all of these things. You don't need to put all of it into one person. It's taken me a very long time to realize if my best friend listens to this, she's going to be tackling because I think she and I have had this conversation. So she's like, oh, are we just are we just preaching from my hymn book here? Is that what we're doing? And <laughs> what I've said to you and I'm like, mm, what you need is to fill your cup up. Um, <laughs> it's true. And I love, like you said, there needs to be more space held. And I agree, this is an evening that doesn't need it doesn't need men. It doesn't need, it just needs these women around this table just talking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that there is, again, like, it's really important that that kind of viewpoint requires a lot of nuance, I think. And it's something that we're losing a little bit of, uh, well, not a little, a lot of, (laughs) a lot of, and it's phones down. It's actually conversing. It's having conversations and good food and good wine and being there. You know, going back to our respective lives, whether that's with partners or not, like partners can still be a great and fulfilling, you know, romantic partners can be a great and fulfilling part of your life, but it is a part of your life. I remember actually for myself, I finally was able to make, a good distinction um where I'm just going through some stuff and I I um uh, for a long time I'd been like yeah I'm just having a hard time I'm having a hard time but then that didn't really gel with sort of the rest of my life because I was like actually I have amazing friends I've got this great career yeah I was finally able to say my life is great my love life not so much and it's a separate part it's one part of a whole picture part of your life it yeah. is one part of a whole picture and it's an important part but it is not the whole. And I think being able to rightly contextualize that, I actually, I really do think that would solve a lot of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really, really yeah. do. You're saying this and I'm like, yeah, no, that is, that is me. You know, you can have your one person, but you're made up of so many parts. And actually your love life, your romantic part is one part. Your friendships are another. Your family relationships are another. Your work is another your passions you're made up of all of these things and I think when you see all this media and literature where it tells you that like one person is going to be your everything in life and your whole world will revolve around that it's actually not that healthy (laughs) and that's that's true for even a single friend you have this don't you where you have those those friends that where you are their best friend or or you realize that you're starting to um sorry not best friend but like you know there's like that co-codependency can exist in friendship as well it's that idea I'm incredibly codependent. Again, my best friend will listen to this and she'll be like, yes, codependency can exist in friendships. But yeah, it's so true. Funnily enough to kind of tie this back, back to Lady Macbeth. Yes. Um, I, like I talk about this stuff so passionately and it is, I do think it features in the book and I, it's, it's the kind of thing, the, the relationships that she has with the different women in her life are, are complex and are complicated and they all give her and bring her different things. But again, it goes back to that idea of she had, she was a whole person and she had this whole life before Macbeth. Oh, Macbeth. Yeah. And actually one of the, I have several um, Shakespeare Easter eggs in the book for people who know the play or also just know Shakespeare generally. I have a couple of like random quotes from tw- Twelfth Night just thrown in there. Just thrown in there, just do it. There's one from Comedy of Errors. Um, but one of my favorite Easter eggs is perhaps a bit more subtle, which is that, Lady Macbeth is only in about a third of the play Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's lines. See, I can't remember what what that number is exactly, whether that is scenes she's in, lines she has. Yep. And Macbeth is only in about a third of the book. Because I wanted to mirror that and this and make it about, even though there's even something, oh, we're getting, I feel like I feel like <laughs> my brain has just gone. I know. So many, well, because there's even something I wanted, like the book is called Lady Macbeth because that's who we know her to be. Yeah. 
but that term lady macbeth is only used twice in the whole book um and that's very deliberate i think because again it is about trying to say yes we know where she is but before she gets there let's just focus on all this other stuff yep. about her so that then we when we do see her with macbeth and we do see her kind of become who we all know her to be we we have all of this to add she's just adding that she's just donning that mantle on top of what she already is and has absolutely i love it well, look i am adoring the book i have seen so many wonderful reviews out there it's doing incredibly i cannot wait for whatever you come up with next and before i let you go and uh, go snuggle your dog and get cozy uh, are you reading anything at the moment i am let me think so i'm actually reading a lot i'm one of those people that it's disgusting it's terrible um but i read because i also read a lot of nonfiction as well as fiction so i have just finished um a couple days ago clytemnestra by constanza cassati but i'll um, start it i can't wait oh my gosh it's just fantastic it's so well written it's absolutely beautiful um so i've just finished that uh, of the six books <laughs> that, that I'm reading at the minute, um, I've just started- That was the most exasperated side from someone who can only read one book at a time. <laughs> My brain explodes, so I'm like, right. Well, I'll do, I'll do one, I'll do one, um, one fiction and one nonfiction. So okay. I'm, reading, I'm reading The Heroines by um, Laura Shepperson. Oh, it looks beautiful. Um, it is, yeah. And I, I'm speaking with her at an event in Glasgow, so- um, I'm yeah really enjoying that and then I'm um reading okay well actually two non-fiction books okay okay go for it do it one is by Ruth Haley Brown it's called Invitation to Solitude and Silence or Invitation to Silence and Solitude um and it is I am a person of faith and it takes or like um yeah I'm a Christian and so it looks at like the importance of um of silence and, and solitude and kind of drawing on a very contemplative meditative way of um of yeah of structuring your life and as somebody who is quite frantic and has lots of ideas all the time yep um, it's just been a really like beautiful a kind of quite healing book as well and then the other book that I'm reading that I'm also loving is a book called Rembrandt is in the wind um and it is a beautiful look at sort of um some of the Baroque artists and the Dutch masters um, and look at their paintings and their lives um, and the way that their faith influenced their work um, and the circumstances in which they were painting influenced their work. And it's just, it's a, it's really, really beautifully written and I'm really enjoying that as well. Well, I mean, it sounds like you have got so much going on. You've got books and traveling and events and your own book and books you're working on and you're amazing you're smashing all of it so honestly absolutely like hats off to you and I cannot I'm loving it I cannot wait to see what you do next and honestly Isabel this has been an absolute joy thank you so so much thank you so much for having me I have had the best time